the setting of this text that we have just read together today is worth understanding in deeper measure. Because it is a moment in the life of the Christian movement that is being reproduced all across the world today, outside of our vision. It's the daily experience of many of the mission partners that our church supports. The first church of the Christian movement was the church at Jerusalem. And the church there in Jerusalem at this moment was undergoing severe persecution. The religious and political authorities of Jerusalem had decided to eradicate this movement before it really got a footing. The cult of Jesus had to go. And so the religious and political authorities alike were systematically applying pressure to the church. They were forcing uh, believers out of their jobs. They were uh, conducting boycotts uh, of Christian merchants. Uh, They were imprisoning uh, Christian individuals and in some cases torturing and even killing them. And in a little while, the persecution would become so fierce that thousands of Christians would be routinely killed. Adding to the pressure that the church was experiencing was the demands of its own routine daily life. The church, as you know and I've spoken about in recent weeks, had dedicated itself to living out the servant lifestyle of Jesus. And so even though it was under tremendous pressure from the outside, it had not stopped caring for widows and orphans and outcasts and was taking many of these under its wing, even as its own resources were being depleted. Add to this further still, The gospel message was moving out into the wider world. People in as far away as Asia Minor were hearing more and more about the the work of Christ, dedicating their lives to Jesus, and moved by their relationship, desiring to go and see where it all began. And so by the hundreds, pilgrims from, from Greece... And, and Italy and Asia Minor were streaming their way to Jerusalem to enter the city and see where the original events had happened. And by the uh, ethic of hospitality that was prevalent in that day, it was the Jerusalem church that now had to shelter and feed and care for all of these pilgrims as well. Persecution, the care of the needy, hospitality towards the stranger applied such an intense pressure upon the early church that they were crying out in desperation for help from beyond. And seeing these circumstances, the Apostle Paul decided to send his personal delegate, Titus, the man whose... uh, letter uh, we or letter to Titus we can read about also in the New Testament Titus goes out and goes around to the various more affluent churches as well as the poorer churches of the ancient world and takes up a collection to help the saints back in Jerusalem to Paul's amazement the most significant help came from the most unlikely source 
Paul could have rightly imagined that there would have been a very healthy offering that would have come in from the churches of, of Philippi or Ephesus or Corinth where things were very stable and uh, times were prosperous for the early Christians. But no. The greatest offerings were pouring in from the churches of Macedonia. And what made this amazing was these were not prosperous areas. And they were, in fact, a region of the empire also undergoing the kind of fierce persecution and oppression that the Jerusalemites were also experiencing. And so Paul marveled at what these Macedonian Christians were doing. And the story of what they did and why they did it remains, at least in my view, one of the most inspiring visions of generosity and serving needs of which I know. Now let me stop here for a moment and turn to our times and get us to think together about this theme of generosity. When we think of generosity, we often conceive of it in terms of some particular dollar figure. We read in the newspaper of some benefactor who's given a very hefty sum to meet a need. Or we go to the hospital or to our alma mater and we see the list of names. Or we're going to the symphony and there again there's the list of names and we look up the list and we see those that are in the platinum category who gave X or Y or Z to the particular cause and we think, wow, those people are really, really generous. In God's understanding, however, generosity is not defined in this way at all. Listen to how the Apostle Paul defines it as he describes the lifestyle of the Macedonian Christians. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I hope you took that in, that last part especially because it is the first part of a biblical definition of generosity. Generosity is the act of not giving a particular sum, but of giving even beyond one's natural ability to do so. It has nothing to do with a particular sum and everything to do with touching a personal sacrifice in the act of serving. In the eyes and the economy of God, we know from Scripture that the widow who gives her tiny might may actually be substantially more generous than the billionaire who gives away millions. You may be surrounded this day with people of heroic generosity. They may not drive beautiful cars. They may not live in great, big, magnificent houses. But in the eyes of God, they may be heroes of the faith because of the sacrifice they regularly make to serve the needs of the saints and of the people that God loves beyond the circle. Are you generous like that? If God looks at your life and looks at my life, does he see generosity as he recognizes it? 
Are we in the habit of stretching beyond our perceived ability, beyond our comfort zone, to give our substance to the purposes of God? Because those of you who are, and I know that there are many among you who are in this number, you could probably testify to a second truth about generosity which a simple story I know of may help to illustrate. Roy Angel tells the tale of a man named Paul who received from his brother one particular Christmas a very remarkable gift. His brother had had an extremely good year and a prosperous business and decided to give to Paul the gift of a shiny new automobile. And I mean, this was a doozy. This was a magnificent car. It was parked there in uh, the city in front of Paul's uh, condo. Uh, He kept it uh, beautifully clean. He came out one day to take a drive in the car, and he found there a a, a street urchin, a boy of maybe 12 years old, smudged, dirty face, tousled hair, kind of run-down clothes, and the boy was just walking around the car in absolute amazement at the vehicle. He just couldn't get over it. He had not seen something like this in a long time. And he didn't even notice Paul coming up to the car. And when he finally noticed the owner standing there by the car with the keys in his hands, he stepped back in shock and said, Geez, mister, is this your car? And Paul says, Yes, that's my car. In fact, my brother gave that car to me for Christmas. What, said the kid? He, he gave you that car and it didn't cost you nothing? And Paul said, that's right. It was just a wonderful gift. And, and the little boy said, oh, I, I wish, I, I wish. And Paul knew what the boy was going to say. He he, he wished that he had a brother that would do something like that for him. But what the little boy went on to say humbled Paul in the heart. For the boy continued and said, I, I wish I could be a brother like that. So touched by the little boy's good heart, a wild idea popped into Paul's head, something that probably in these days wouldn't happen for fear of prosecution. But he said, hey, would you like a ride in my car? (laughs) And the boy said, could I? And he said, sure, come on in. And so he opened up the door and the boy climbed into the passenger seat and Paul sat into the car and revved the engine and they roared off down the city street together. The boy's hair streaming in the wind, a grin as broad as a Cheshire cat on his face. And as they looped around through the city and were headed back to their point of origin, the boy said, Mr., Mr., I just want to ask you a favor. You see that building over there? That's where I live. Could you stop there just for a minute? Just for a minute. There's some, I've got to show something. I've just got to have the folks there see something. And Paul knew exactly what the little boy had in mind. He wanted to to have his friends and his family see him driving in this fantastic car, at least see the car that he'd been privileged to ride in. And so Paul pulled over by the curbside, and the boy got out of the car, and he said, I'll just be back in a minute. And he ran up the steps into a very run-down-looking apartment building. Ten minutes later, the boy came out again. 
And, and he pushed the, the door open with his back because he was carrying something. And Paul strained to see what it was. And he saw that he had an awfully big package in his arms. And as he came out of the shadows and began to come down the steps of the apartment complex, he, Paul could see what the package was. It wasn't a package. It was, it was a person. It was a frail little body. It was a littler boy with legs so withered it was clear he was a cripple. And the older boy struggled down the stairs and got to the bottom of the stairs and, and gently laid the littler child down on the door stoop, on the lower step. And and then he sat down next to him and he sidled up next to him and he pulled him in close to him to hold his body up against his body. And he said, See, buddy, see, it's just like I told you. See the car? His brother gave that to him and it didn't cost him nothing. Someday, buddy, someday, I going to give you a gift like that. And Paul felt his heart humbled a level st further still. And getting out of his car, he came up to the two boys and he says, boys, what do you say we go for another ride? And this time, picking up the littler boy himself in his big, strong arms, he put him in the passenger seat and pulled in his brother alongside of him and again hit the gas and they went out and drove for an hour and I'll tell you, it was a joy ride that the three of them would never, ever forget. And Paul says that he learned that day for himself the truth of words he'd heard a hundred times but never really fully understood. The words of Jesus when he said, truly, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that truth in the depths of your heart <coughs> like Paul came to understand it? Some of you know that it is not being served, but serving. It is not getting, but giving. That is life's greatest privilege. Some of you have a lifestyle that reflects the awareness of that. Some of you understand that generosity is a path to joy. It is not a burden. It's an opportunity. It's not an obligation. It's a wonderful opportunity. The Macedonian Christians apparently got this too. Because Paul writes... They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Let me say that again. They urgently pleaded with us for this privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. Wouldn't it be something if that was the norm amongst us here? Can you imagine a worship service in which people begin to tap their feet impatiently because the offering hasn't happened yet. 
Can you imagine a day in the life of our church when the phone calls that come in over uh, the week are not to find out who happens to be preaching or what they happen to be wearing, I might add, or, but, but what are the service needs at the church? And how can we get involved in meeting the needs of the saints? How can we serve the, the people beyond this world? Can you imagine the day when the, the cheers and the cries of praise, the applause goes up, not for the choir, God bless them, or for the preacher, but for the ushers that bring forward the plates. I know that day is coming. I can see it just around the corner in the life of our church. But this is what really displays the heart of generosity and serving needs that is the vision of Jesus. The reality, of course, is that sometimes generosity like this requires some coaxing, right? For some of us, it's a natural thing. For others of us, it takes some coaxing. Sometimes we've got to be challenged to pursue excellence in serving with our time and our talent and our treasure, the kind of excellence that we routinely seek out in all the other areas of our life. That's why the Apostle Paul says to that great church at Corinth, which was one of the most affluent churches of the ancient world, and I would dare to say these words to you, just as you excel in everything, and you do, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It seems to me that there are two final reasons why this kind of generosity makes sense. One reason is because generosity, whether it's with our time, our talent, or our treasure, all three, is a pretty reliable test of the sincerity of the love we profess. It is easy to say, I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. I love the church. I love the mission of the church. It is quite another thing to touch sacrifice to serve the needs of those places. Paul says to the Corinthians, I am not commanding you to give. Uh, I'm not, I, can't, I can't command you to give. But I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, in this case, the Macedonians. Now, that may sound awfully mercenary or materialistic to some of us, but you think about it, it you'll see it's true. That, that, that generosity is a test of the earnestness of our love. I mean, think about this. When you really love somebody, raise your hand if you've ever really loved somebody. Okay, yeah, good. So if you love somebody and you're faced with a choice between, uh, you know, the big, the big piece of the cookie and the small piece of the cookie, uh, or, 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 the, or the really nice seat and the maybe not quite as good seat, or the, the, the harder task or the easier task, which do you take for yourself and which do you give to the other? If you really love somebody, do you give them the, the big part of the cookie or the small part of the cookie? The big part of the cookie, yeah, you do. And it, does, it, it even hardly feels like sacrifice because of the sincerity of your love for that person. Test yourself honestly. Think about your own life. How does your current handling of your cookies, um, what does it say 
about who and what you love most in life? If your answer to that question is not totally comfortable, then please remember this final truth that the Macedonian Christians also apparently knew. Generosity is really not that hard because generosity is ultimately the overflow of grace received. Generosity is not difficult when it is simply the overflow of the grace you have received. Tony Campolo, a wonderful Christian author and sociologist, makes this point very clearly in one of his famous stories. Campolo is a traveling speaker, and he was passing on this particular day through a a major metropolitan train station, one of those ones you've been through, I'm sure, many, many times. And as he's going along on his way to the train, he's got a little bit of time on his hands. He's sort of looking about, and he notices that there's a cluster of people that have gathered over in this one particular part of of the terminal plaza. And being curious, he goes over to see what it is. Apparently something's going on in this cluster, this huddle. And as he gets closer, there's, there's a lot of murmuring and looking, and he is able to look over the top and see that at the center of the, the gaggle of people, there is a man lying on the ground, on the dirty, grimy ground. And he is convulsing uncontrollably. And the people there are not sure what to do about this. And they're just so they're, they're watching when all of a sudden somebody at the outskirts of, of, of the crowd is coming over with two cups of coffee, sees what's going on, and he puts the coffee down, and he parts the crowd, and he goes in, and he kneels down astride the man who's in the seizure, and he reaches out, and he holds his head, and he actually goes into his mouth and pulls his tongue and turns the head sideways and then holds him there uh, until the seizures subside. And the crowd, seeing that the panic is past, dissipates. But Campolo stays behind. And he goes up to the, to the man who's, who's still attending to the man on the ground and, says, and kneels down next to him and says, Sir, I'm just, I'm just blown away by what I just saw you do. Um, and the man says, oh, it's, it's nothing. He says, no. Campolo says, no. I, listen, I travel a lot. I know people. I see lots of situations. I don't see this kind of thing very often in my travels. And the man says, no. I'm telling you, it was nothing. And he pulls himself up to his feet. And Campolo says, I just want to thank you on behalf of this man for what I just saw you do. And, and the man says, let me tell you, buddy, you, you don't need to thank me. Because this guy, Bill here, and I were in the war together. And we were in a helicopter when it was shot down behind enemy lines. And we hit the ground hard, and it's a miracle that we survived. And, and, and Bill here, he was torn up bad. I mean, he had a shoulder and back full of shrapnel. And me, my legs were broken. We could hear the enemy fire getting closer and closer to us. And I said to him, man, Bill, you got to get out of here, man. I can't walk. I'm not going to make it, but you got to go. 
You, gotta, you can still make it. And Billy wouldn't leave me. He wouldn't leave me. Not only wouldn't leave me, he got down next to me, and he hoisted me up on those ravaged, bloody, torn shoulders of his, and he carried me three days through the jungle to safety. Several years ago, he said, I got the word that Bill had come down with this, with this illness. And so I, I quit my job, and I uh, sold my house, and I, I moved out here to take care of it. Because after what this brother did for me, I'm telling you, mister, there ain't nothing that I wouldn't do to serve him. Do you understand in the depths of your heart that you have a brother like that? You do. Do you understand this is what the Lenten season is all about? That you have got a brother that loves you and serves you like that. Because once upon a time, when the weight of your sin and the damage that sin had done to your soul left you down for the count and out, he picked you up. He picked up your sin and the, the vast weight of this broken world and he put it all upon his shoulders and he carried it. He carried it all the way to the cross to save you, that you might go forth to live. The Macedonians, they got this. The Corinthians, they needed to get this in deeper measure. And so St. Paul puts it in these words. You know, you've got to get the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich beyond compare, safe beyond measure, He became poor. He risked it all. He gave up everything for your sakes so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Please tell me, Please tell me that hearing these stories from Macedonia, from the streets of that city, from that train station, from the hill called Calvary, just tell me that hearing these stories stimulates some kind of response in you and in me. Because at the end of the day, generosity is simply the natural response of those who do understand what God has done. And that means that if our heart is not generous in serving needs, then it just does not yet get what God has done. 
Please pray with me. Lord, please help us to get it more. Help us to be touched deeply enough by the wonder of your servant heart that we cannot help but show a greater generosity in our service of others. Reschedule our time, Lord. Redeploy our talents. Redirect the use of our treasure so that we can be to someone else in need a sister or brother like you. For we pray in your precious name. And all God's people said,